You're listening to a History Hub podcast. History Hub is based at the School of History at University College Dublin. Subscribe to our podcasts on Apple, Spotify and SoundCloud. For more information and to listen to hundreds of podcasts, go to historyhub.ie. In this episode, the second of two keynote lectures from the Military Welfare History Network 2023 conference, which took place in UCD in July. The conference was supported by several organisations and individuals. These were Professor Adele Lendenmeyer, Dr. Michael Tyquin, the Centre for Military, War and Society Studies at the University of Kansas, courtesy of the Centre Director, Professor Beth Bailey, Society for the History of War, Society for the Social History of Medicine, and UCD Centre for War Studies. The conference was organised by Dr. Paul Huddy, who told me about the network. Today is the first in-person meeting of the Military Welfare History Network. It is an international collective of scholars of 166 in number, meeting together to discuss all manner of uh, historical situations, provisions, etc. related to the military community. So that's serving personnel and their families. First started in February 2019 and have grown steadily since then. This is the first in-person meeting of the membership. Uh, I just say that anyone who is doing any form of military welfare welfare history, be that related to service personnel, families or anything like that related to all matters of medical provision or social policy, regardless of chronology or geographical location, uh, to get in touch with the Military Welfare History Network and uh, just Google us online. This episode features the second keynote by Dr. Qichin Jia from Indiana University, Bloomington, who presented on War and Welfare in Austria in the Age of the Great War. So first, I'd like to thank Paul for inviting me to talk about this topic. Um, I'd also like to thank the conference sponsors and all of you um, for making this a wonderful occasion and also stimulating occasion to discuss our common interests. Um, the talk is based on what I talk about in the book, um, but I'm going to remain largely at the 35 thousand, not million, <laughs> feet high. So if you want to look at some of the detail, especially nitty-gritty stories, uh, the book is free, just download it. Um, I was told that there are too many details there. Um, okay, so let me now begin with a few images about the Habsburg Empire or Austria-Hungary in the Great War. Um, unfortunately, um, these particular belligerents that started the war, literally, uh, often disappear from our narratives of the First World War after the scene of the July crisis in textbook accounts. Traditionally, it does not receive more attention in the more specialized comparative research either, especially those written in English language. I hope my talk and a lot of my colleagues' many new works can help change this curious absence in some way. So just a few images. Um, first is the, the 1914, and then this is where it all started. Uh, Archduke Franz Ferdinand and his wife, Sophie Hotek, uh, were assassinated by Princip, uh, who's underage assassins who were really lucky to actually call them because they take the wrong turn. Um, and then this also reminds you of the uh, Austro-Hungarian forces, multi-ethnic, multi-religious background, 
um, there are some exciting new research on how these armed forces actually up, uh, function during the war, especially after it lost most of its professional junior officers, which actually turned out to be better than everybody had said. Um, but in this photo, there they probably there are some uh, Russian POWs here uh, in the um, fighter service for the Jewish soldiers. And then there's also uh, some of the fighting terrains, um, uh, especially this is uh, either on the um, Italian front or it could also be Carpathian Mountains. But here is probably uh, the uh, Alpine front versus the Italians. So the Habsburg Empire fought on three fronts, uh, again, on the east against the Russians, uh, on uh, southeast against Serbia. This is actually where the whole thing started. And then starting in mid-1915, uh, southwest against Italy. And then this is the, some sad numbers. Um, Austria-Hungary had a total population around 52 million at the beginning of the war. Um, over 8 million men were mobilized, and there were also over 100,000 women directly participated as military personnel, sometimes as combatants. Um, and the interwar uh, official statistics put the uh, military death over a million, and then uh, over 1.6 million soldiers were captured or missing. And there's also a debate over whether you count uh, the Austrian, Austro-Hungarian soldiers captured by Italians at the last days uh, of the war um, in November uh, 1918. Did you count them as part of the capture or do you count them extra? But generally, you can see every month, uh, if you think about military welfare, uh, this is a kind of horribly big, unimaginable numbers uh, every 12 months for the Austro-Hungarian authorities and also the society in general to deal with this such high number of casualties. Nobody had prepared for it. Um, and if you want, if using U.S. population of last year as a kind of comparison, um, last year, U.S. had around 330 million total population. So if you think of the Austro-Hungarian uh, casualties and projected to today's U.S. population, you will hypo hypothetically mobilize over 50 million soldiers, and 6 million of them will be dead. And if you think, imagine that kind of scale of losses for uh, East Central Europe. Um, this is what happened between 1914 and 1919, and somebody will put it 1923. That's when most of the hostility actually ended. So, um, now the real talk. Uh, these are the backgrounds. Um, on 2nd of April 1919, the new Austrian Republic's very first social minister, and the veteran Social Democrat, Ferdinand Hanusch, this guy, appeared before the Constituent National Assembly. He presented the coalition government's bill for the so-called war victims, that is, disabled soldiers and their dependents, and also survivors to dead soldiers. Hanusch told the assembly that the proposed legislation will be one of the most expensive financial commitments in the new republic's first budget. But he argued, I quote, 
Today, we can't possibly give war invalids hurdy gurdies and send them away to beg on the streets, as people did after previous wars. It is against today's social conscience and something we simply couldn't do. Even if the burden is tremendously heavy, the healthy and those who are fit to work should make their share of sacrifice for the benefit of those who suffer because of the war. If we can't return fathers to their sons, husbands to their wives, and sons to their parents, we must at least take care of the unfortunate people financially, so that they do not have to panhandle, as was the case in the past. End quote. So, drawing repeated cheers and applause from the assembly,、um, whose members included some of the very first women ever to sit in a national parliament in Central Europe. Hanush asked the assembly to make the bill into law as quickly as possible, and indeed, in a little more than three weeks, the bill became the Invalid Compensation Law of 25th April 1919. <clears throat> By directly comparing the before and the now, Hanush made a strong case for the young Austrian Republic. There was a long list of threats to its survival: hunger, cold, communists at home and abroad, neighbors such as Hungary and what later became Yugoslavia, and the vengeful Entente powers. Hanush's commitment to support citizens in need was to show that the republic would not only be democratic but also social. The republic promised to succeed where the Habsburg Empire had failed. It would be a different citizen-oriented state that cares for the so-called poorest of the poor. That's that's the word、uh, the war victims themselves use、uh, in 1918, 1919. The path-breaking war victim legislation of April 1919 was crisis management, democratic statement, and republic justification all at the same time. But Hanush's message about the republic's total break from the past was far from the full picture. The 1919 law was, in fact, the culmination of a reform continuum that remade the Austrian state and changed its relation to with citizens. 1918 was a key turning point, but not the starting point. And in terms of military welfare, we need a longer-term perspective to understand. The significance of wartime and post-war developments, structural evolution was as important as changes and innovation in the middle of a revolution in 1918 or 1919.、Um, I shall skip the sorry military history of Austria-Hungary in the Great War.、Uh, suffice to say that battlefront defeats, on top of unprecedented heavy casualties. You saw just a few minutes earlier, losing strategic and diplomatic autonomy after 1916 in a war that Austria-Hungary fought to defend its great power status in the first place, and home from subsistence crisis, marked the overall experience of Austria in Great War. It was a series of disasters following the Habsburg Empire's alleged long-term decline. The war was only the last straw on the camel's back. 
According to this conventional view, Austria-Hungary was anachronistic and decrepit before 1914. It foolishly got into a war to realize the long-promised doom. However, this doom and gloom narrative about late Imperial Austria or Austria-Hungary in general has been undermined by the revisionist historiography over the last 40 years. Drawing inspiration from the revisionist insights, I will argue that there's another story about the Great War in Austria. It is one about the emergence of the welfare state and more assertive citizens who push for social rights under the shadow of the devastating war. In focusing on welfare for war victims, we can see that there was indeed a war welfare nexus in Austria. The general conscription-based citizen army led to massive welfare entitlement in the context of increased political participation. The Austrian state had new missions and responsibilities, and citizens demanded rights of being provided for. Um, I use specifically uh, citizen army to describe what Austria-Hungary sent Uh, to the battlefield.、Um, previously, people usually don't think about Austria-Hungary actually send citizens to war, but this, these actual people actually had equal citizen rights. The story, this alternative story, or another story, also shows that these new developments were not an entirely post-war phenomenon. The successor states to Austria-Hungary claimed that they had come up with bold new things to handle the mess left by the empire, but the political break in Central Europe in fall 1918 was accompanied by what I call a welfare reform continuum, which I mentioned earlier already. It was most obvious in the small post-war Austrian Republic. So the title of Austria in my the title the word Austria in the title of my Talk refer both to the big imperial Austria, but also the small Austrian Republic as a part of that successor state constellation. The origin of the Austrian welfare state、uh, usually trace back to the labor protection debate in the 1860s and 1870s, and then especially the 1880s Bismarckian social legislation for industrial workers. Uh, I call it Bismarckian social legislation because the Austrians borrow heavily from the German draft laws of the same era, and they were actually German of officials who work for Austrian government, and they're thinking about the same ideas.、Um, industrialization and the resulting class politics are seen as the key to understand the beginning of the Austrian welfare state. But if we look closer. Other numbers, the occupation-based Bismarckian social legislation was very limited. In 1900, less than 20 percent of the Austrian labor force was covered by the 1888 compulsory health insurance. The means-tested municipal public assistance, what、well, you can call it, poor relief,、um, this is a very old form of public support for people in need. Require one to have established legal domicile to be eligible. This means that public poor re- relief was beyond the reach of most urban residents in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, 
because they were migrants, mostly migrants from the countryside or the hinterland, and obtaining domicile rights was virtually impossible for most of them. Simply put, too few people were eligible for the old uh, poor relief or the new forms of welfare provision in Imperial Austria. And my research shows that war victim welfare was the missing piece of the puzzle. It constitutes a complementary route to the Austrian state's comprehensive and direct commitment to citizens' welfare. Very importantly, citizenship was the basis for entitlement. The benefits were not tied to occupation affiliation or status group membership or even the narrow domicile rights. During and after the Great War, severely wounded servicemen and servicewomen were entitled to direct state care and welfare provision because of their citizenship-based war service. Their dependents or survivors, young and old, women and men, were included in the developing system that culminated in the Invalid Compensation Law of April 1919 I mentioned earlier. As many as a half million out of the new Austrian Republic's total population of 6 million were expected to benefit from the new law. By virtue of war victim welfare, a significant portion of the population became the state's new client, especially the rural working class. My work on Austrian war victim welfare therefore brings the Habsburg Central Europe into conversation with the historiography of the European welfare state. Historians of women have highlighted how important the Great War was for the expansion uh, of welfare state in Western Europe and Germany. The Great War materialized and make explicit and amplified an Austrian war welfare nexus that was entailed in the pre-war military legislation. So this is the argument I'm, going, I'm making, but I will elaborate on that later. Historical sociologist Charles Tilly famously claimed that, I quote, state makes war, war makes state, end quote. My research suggests that war makes welfare state too. And he also shows disability as an integral part of the history of modern state building. And now let me illustrate that this point, the, the points I already made, uh, this particular Austrian story of war and welfare with a longer arch across the 1918 divide. And this will underline both the importance of the wartime changes, but also the necessity to pay attention to long-term evolution. Before 1875, the official provision for disabled soldiers in Austria was primarily an anti-bagging measure. Its main goal was to prevent desperate veterans joining the crowd of the mobile poor, begging from town to town, offering ragged uniforms that allegedly undermine the reputation of the Habsburg army and the Habsburg state. The pre-1875 system of provision for veterans was based on two assumptions. First, the military disability often did not impede the veterans to make a living outside of the army. So if you want to think about what this disability means, uh, this is a concept of disability that based on one's particular occupation. 
different occupation will result in different definition of disability. The second assumption uh, was that the veterans would have support from family or local charities. The system offered two forms of provision. Either the disabled man go to a residential invalid house where the disabled man was given what he needed but subject to full military discipline, or he could receive a limited payment but having to live in a designated community. That is, there's no movement without permission. And due to fiscal constraint, over the course of the 19th century, the Austrian military tried to reduce costs while protecting its reputation. So it's basically a contradictory goal. Access to official support was limited because they want to save money, but they also want to uphold the army's reputation by controlling the behavior of the recipient. So some of you already talked about this, uh, especially the soldier's marriage. Uh, our Habsburg army basically tried to make the point that we don't need more poor widows or orphans. So if you receive welfare uh, payments, you should not get married unless you get specific uh, permission. Uh, official provision for disabled veterans was therefore a form of social discipline mixed with a more modern concern for the Austrian state's reputation. Universal military service for adult male introduced in the Habsburg Empire after 1868 was an unintended route to Austrian state's commitment to its citizens' minimum welfare. But this change in state-citizen relations remain in the realm of policy implications rather than the actual practice. The 1875 military welfare law was the first modern legislation to address the need of the members of the new conscription army in Austria, but the law paid only marginal attention to non-career servicemen. Basically, they had to lose their full civilian earning power to become, uh, to become eligible for a small pension. And there were no benefits for non-career servicemen's dependents at all. Additional laws were added in 1884 and 1887 to address the needs of dead soldier survivors, but these laws retained the character of public charity. They did not offer rights-based benefits. The democratization of political culture forced Austrian officials to re revisit this kind of military welfare after two partial mobilizations during the Balkan crisis in early 20th century. And this resulted in the 1912 Living Allowance Law, designed specifically for mass citizen army. It established a principle, although people at the time did not really think about the actual uh, implication, how, how big the commitment will become, uh, that the central state will become the surrogate breadwinner for soldiers' family in the case of war mobilization. And the state will continue paying the family uh, living allowance until the end of mobilization. Now we get to the war. Um, the Great War, or the First World War, activated the theoretical universal coverage of the military welfare law since the 1875. The unprecedented scale of war mobilization made the Austrian state's commitment to its citizens a reality. 
As the war dragged on, this commitment became open-ended, and in turn, it transformed short-term provision obligations into a major issue of political legitimacy. Also, between 1914 and 1917, a hastily constructed network of agencies and providers offered medical and other welfare services to war victims. Civil society organizations and individual volunteers, both men and women, play a central role in this welfare mobilization. They contribute money, material, and labor. They collected and distribute donations and services. They staff the new public and private welfare organizations from top to bottom. Without these non-state actors or semi-state actors, the Austrian state would not have been able to sustain the war effort. And this robust welfare activism, uh, importantly, took place when formal party and representative politics were suppressed by the Habsburg army. So wartime welfare activism actually opened a new avenue for civil society to assert influence in the affair of the state. And we can see it in 1917 and 1918 that some welfare organization openly criticized the government's policy and the military's um, practices in providing for the injured soldiers. Um, the realized logic of welfare for legitimacy, that is, the state offer welfare support so that citizens remain loyal while these non-rebellious, became especially important as battlefront losses continued, home front shortages worsened, and when people thought the moral order was collapsing. This is especially after 1916. And in 1917, with the new Emperor Karl, a reconvened parliament, an ongoing revolution in Russia and the inability of the multi-ethnic monarchy, like most, unlike most other belligerents, to promote a second mobilization through nationalism, um, the Imperial Austria turned to ambitious welfare state expansion, tried to salvage itself from within. And I call this a social offensive on the home front. The 1917 push was to formally transform the central state into a main guarantor of its citizens' short- and long-term well-being. The founding of the new Ministry of Social Welfare at the end of 1917 was the clearest signal of this new direction. With alarming nationalist agitation, welfare was perhaps one of the few remaining positive unifying vision Imperial Austria could afford to all the peoples uh, in its territory, regardless of their ethnicity or nationalities, the Habsburg Empire had to become a welfare commonwealth. And of course, nationalists had different ideas and already seized some of the welfare initiatives for their own agenda. Uh, Vienna sent money to the Crownlands, and Crownlands sometimes delegate uh, the new welfare initiative to the nationalist welfare organizations. These common interests of both the imperial officials and local nationalists actually prove my point that welfare provision had become the place to fight for political loyalty. In the meantime, a clear sense of urgency can be seen in the new social ministries uh, officials' frenetic activities. They try an old Austrian trick 
centralizing and expanding welfare system, and they build a lot of new agencies all over Imperial Austria. They hoped they could save the empire with a more、um, etatized. I can't use the word nationalized because in the Habsburg Empire context, nationalized does means not becoming nationalist. So I use the word etatized, and. So what what the Austrian welfare official tried to do was to create a more etatized welfare administration system, and also a, with a new、uh, state control welfare agencies that could meet the needs of citizens. And they specifically say their goal is to offer individualized care. Their dream, but of course not the reality.、Um, the imperial state's social offensive was obviously too little and too late. But the collapse of the Habsburg Empire in 1918 even reinforced this momentum of welfare reforms. Several successor states emphasized their social mandate as integral part of their claims to democratic legitimacy. The Austrian Republic, especially, enjoyed a kind of the losers' advantage. Unlike the quote-unquote victorious countries of Czechoslovakia and Poland. It did not have to debate whether to prioritize certain disabled veterans over others, based on their supposed different level of contribution to the rebirth of the nation states. In the small Austrian Republic, the revolution in 1918 simply furthered the speedy growth of central states' welfare responsibilities because everyone could claim to be a victim of something. Furthermore, the radicalization of the revolution all over Central Europe in 1918 and 1919 provided, you can call it, a kind of red cover or red scare that the Austrian Republic's new leaders needed. The fear of a Bolshevik revolution in Austria helped the Social Democrats to convince their conservative colleagues to commit to a comprehensive welfare expansion. The egalitarian invalid compensation law of 1919, I mentioned early, was which based its provision or based its pension primarily on beneficiaries' loss of civilian earning power and did not consider their military rank or service less at all, was passed unanimously when the Parliament building had to be guarded with machine guns against communist-led semi-putschists. So you can see that the moderate socialists work with conservatives and get the law quickly passed, so that they can tell all the potential voters and all the citizens, "Hey, we're doing something." This comprehensive new invalid law, it is worth repeating, was both an original goal of the 1917 Imperial Social Offensive. And then the Austrian Social Democrats planned first step toward a very ambitious welfare state. So short-term necessity and long-term goals converge in 1919, and also you can say socialist、uh, goals and the kind of imperial bureaucratic goals kind of converge in 1919.、Um, these former imperial welfare officials. Uh, were also more than willing to work with Ferdinand Hanusch and his social democratic colleagues.、Uh, in the archive, it's really remarkable to see how smooth the transition、uh, from the Imperial Ministry of Social Welfare to the Republican、uh, State Office of Social Welfare, as if nothing had changed 
And now the officials, you can even feel that in the document, those civil servants feel very happy because they have a socialist social minister backing them up and asking for more. But this rapid welfare expansion after 1917 was also made possible by war victims' grassroots activism. War victims, especially those disabled veterans, quickly organized themselves in 1918, forcing the Social Democrats to work with them. What emerged was a kind of partnership of the weak. The New Republic, at a moment of weakness and uncertainty, collaborated with the physically and financially vulnerable war victims. Organized war victims gained direct access to material resources and a say in the government's policymaking and interministerial negotiations. They even placed their own in the new district-level invalid offices as staff to serve their fellow war victims. So welfare state expansion at this moment was made possible by the clients who, in turn, became state agents themselves. And pulling all the stops, the enterprising activists, uh, themselves disabled, get the authorities' attention, not just central authority, but also local authorities. They travel to small towns and large cities to build local chapters. They demanded a client-oriented state welfare system to serve, they call themselves, the first creditors of the state. And they indeed get a welfare system in which they participated in both deciding individual cases and making policies. Um, The kind of committee or the board that decided on individual disabled veterans' degree of loss of earning power usually will have um, at least one member of organized disabled veterans and one of the medical doctors will be appointed by organized disabled veterans organizations. So you can see that how much it's a participatory decision-making. Um, and at the highest level, the interministerial commission on the social welfare also include disabled veteran organization representatives. So you can see that from top to bottom, from everyday operation to policymaking, they're all in. This ironically became a curse later because it encouraged the war victim movement fragmentation. But between 1918 and 1921, war victims' politics was an example of the Austrian Revolution's impact, the creation and experimentation in a democratic social citizenship, often beyond the control of traditional political parties. So, the conclusion... Um, The Great War's mobilization and casualties materialized and amplified a war welfare nexus that was already entailed in the pre-war military forms. The war brought a profound social and political crisis, which in turn forced the imperial state and its successors to undertake welfare expansion in exchange for political legitimacy. In this regard, the Great War was critically important in the long-term process of transitioning from the warfare state to the welfare state in Central Europe, especially in the context of the pre-war failure to expand social insurance to cover the majority of the working population. However, 
we should keep in mind that the egalitarian post-World War I welfare legislation was the culmination of a reform continuum starting in 1917, if not earlier. 1918 was a key turning point, but not the starting point, as a lot of national or nationalist historiography like to claim and continue to claim. War victim welfare in Austria also shows that democratization and expansion of the state's responsibility and power went hand in hand. The expansion of the state's purview was a response to the citizens' needs, but also their demands, and made possible by citizens' activism and participation. Just think about how many new officials uh, Austria need will need to implement those welfare legislation. So they kind of hire the potential clients to run some of the, the basic units of processing those cases. The long-term perspective I presented here also remind us that the first Austrian Republic should not be written off as simply an interlude between the Habsburg and Adolf Hitler. The first Republic was a failed experiment, but the initial hopes... Um, And aspirations, even if they were born out of desperation, had to be taken seriously. The social legislation championed by Social Democrat Ferdinand Hanusch prepared the ground not only for the ensuing two decades. The invalid compensation law, for example, served as the starting point of the Second Republic's disability welfare legislation after 1945. To give you a very concrete example, today's Austrian public and private em employers all had to all have to fulfill oblig obligatory hiring quota for qualified disabled people. This requirement can be traced back to the Invalid Employment Law of 1920, which required employers of a certain size to hire a required number of disabled veterans. And so in matters of welfare politics and social citizenship, which happened across the 1918 divide in Austria, uh, has a very long-lasting impact for both citizens and the state. In Austria and in Central Europe more generally, the Great War certainly played a key role in the formation and thickening of the modern welfare states. And I hope that in the future we will see more research and also comparative studies of how this uh, some, sometimes divergent past in terms of how to define states' uh, obligations and also social citizenship in different political systems over the 20th, 20th century in Central Europe can be put into, in a kind of more integrated way to, um, to be explained and in terms of everyone talking about different national cases. And in the end, we can really see You know, their common origins or common origins by divergent paths uh, because of other factors. So um, that's about it. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to this History Hub podcast. History Hub is based at the School of History in University College Dublin. Subscribe to our podcast on Apple, Spotify, and SoundCloud. For more information and to listen to hundreds of podcasts, go to historyhub.com dot IE.